for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Out of sight of the world, I realize as the light filters empty through the vine, I look outside and I'm alright. Oh, yeah. Well, am I crazy? Baby, this isolated life
Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. Um, we're going to talk this hour about a, uh, a book. It's called Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, an American Daughter, and is a multi-generational memoir co-written by acclaimed Vietnamese-American novelist, lawyer, and professor Lan Cao and her daughter Harlan Margaret Van Cao. And uh, they join me by phone. Lan, Harlan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Um, Hi, Tom. I, I want to ask, there, there are so many things to talk about with this book, um, but I want to talk about, first, the idea of a multi-generational memoir. How tough is it, and I'm, I think I'm going to ask Harlan this first, um, how tough is it to write a book with your mom? <laughs> um, I would say very tough, and on top of it, I think doing it while I'm in high school is definitely... It, te- it tested me a lot. Um, the relationship, I, I think, was already really complicated without the book being involved and knowing that a lot of it would have to kind of go out publicly. So deciding what to filter out um, was challenging. And on top of it, we had very different visions. So I think getting on the same page was probably the hardest thing in our relationship that we've ever done um but i think it comes out in the book nicely even when we didn't agree on something and <laughs> maybe the rest is, is is choppy or something like that you can see it and i think it adds to adds to the book it doesn't take away from it you mean there were times you didn't agree on stuff <laughs> i know it's a shock <laughs> it is I, i'm shocked um Lon, you have uh, written uh, scholarly works like Culture and Law and Development, Nurturing Positive Change. You've also written Monkey Bridge and The Lotus and the Storm. How is this book different than the other books you've written? I feel like uh, those are two, two, actually three very different categories of writing. So because I am a... Uh, law professor, uh, one of the main things we do have to do and that I actually love to do is writing uh, legal scholarship. So that sort of writing is, I think, to me, is, is sort of like daily life, meaning it's a conscious process where you're very directed in terms of what your goals are and how you go about accomplishing your goals. So it's, to me, it's very methodical doing legal research. A lot of the materials are, quote, out there for me to discover and then to write up. And, of course, I only pick topics that I really care about. But still, it's all external in terms of what I, how I go about uh, finding the material. Then the second type of writing, to me, which is fiction, is a little bit more subliminal. Uh, it's more, it's more uh, kind of dreamlike because it taps into a little bit more of the unruly unconscious. So I love doing that too. And it's it's very much based on 
a little bit of reality, but mostly imagination. So that's why it's very much a dreamscape. And then the third type of writing, which is what I'm, the, the family in Six Tones is about, is sort of a hybrid between legal scholarship and fictional writing in the sense that it's based on reality. And it's less of a dreamscape because your commitment when you do a memoir is that the things that you write about actually happen. Uh, even if your version of the truth may be different from somebody else's version of the truth, there, there are cores of truth uh, involved. And so the memoir form is uh, a hybrid, but much more raw, much more exposed. And I think, for me, tougher to do. And because it's also a collaborative work, it took a lot out of me. Uh, I've never, I have never ever done anything that is co-authored, except one law review article with, with a colleague of mine. But aside from that, um, it's all, you know, solo. So it's very hard to, to work with anybody else, and especially with your daughter and especially your teenage daughter. <laughs> I wasn't going to put that qualifier in there, but as long as you did. Um, I, I did want to mention uh, somewhat parenthetically that um, I referenced it, you referenced it, that you're uh, a professor of law, um, and you have taught at uh, Brooklyn Law School, Duke University School of Law, William and Mary Law School, and University of Michigan Law School. Were you? Did, yeah, uh, where you are. Yeah, I know. It's right down the road. And I wonder, did you live in Michigan for a time? Yes. Uh, we we lived in Ann Arbor uh, at University of Michigan Housing, the law school housing. It was fantastic. Um, I think we could even walk to the law school. That's how close we were to the law school. And we were there in the winter term <laughs> uh, for, for somebody, you know, born in the tropics. It was quite a shock. I would think. Um, winter 2003. So actually, my daughter was there. She was about six or seven months when we moved there for the semester. And uh, Bill and I both taught there too. My, my uh, at the time uh, he was teaching at Duke, but he visited at Michigan as well. Well, I just I just wanted to bring that up because it is so close by, and um, and and I wondered if uh, if Harlan had had the chance to experience snow, but it sounds like she might have been a little young. I was there when I was really little, tiny baby, and then we moved to Williamsburg in Virginia, and that had four seasons. So until I was ten, and also I spent a lot of time in Washington D.C. So I love the snow. I think the one thing about California that makes me really upset is just the fact that I don't have I don't have that. I get so excited whenever I see it. Well, you could go up in the mountains. But that's true. There's Big Bear. <laughs> Um, but getting back to the to the book, and and I also I'm not sure exactly how to to introduce this into the uh, conversation. But Lon, you um, came to this country at 13 as a refugee from and and somewhat in the aftermath of of war in Vietnam. Um, what? And after 40 years of being here, I read something that said you still feel tentative about your place here. Uh, yes, because 
I, I think it, it's it's a hybrid. You know, it, it's definitely a hybrid. And even though I spent a lot more time in this country than I did in Vietnam, I mean, I was in Vietnam <clears throat> only 13 years. Um, it, you know, those years were also so turbulent with the war. So there was a, the war was a very big imprint on my life. And it, it's not just kind of like in the distance because um, everybody in my family was involved in one way or another in the war. And I even had a, an uncle who was a Viet Cong. So the war was very much inside the family, the issues surrounding the war. And when I moved here, um, the, the first four years were very difficult for me because they were immediately, I was a teenager and already going through, you know, the typical teenager transitional period. But I landed right in this country and went into high school as a teenager. And, you know, in 75, Vietnam was very, um, kind of like a contentious subject in the aftermath. And the Vietnam and for some, And for some, Lon, it still is. Yes, yes. It, it's continuing, right? I mean, if, if you have uh, uh, somebody running for president, what they did during that period resurfaced as a topic uh, during a campaign, let's say. So it remains very turbulent. So when you are an outsider as a refugee, sort of dropped into this environment, it made you, it made me very shaky. I was on very shaky ground. How, and I think things how, that happen in school just stay with you. How, how, were you, how was your um, English when you started school here? Um shaky. I mean, it, it's not as if I didn't speak a word because I had a lot of uh, American uh, GI friends. You know, uh, the, the American soldiers were everywhere in Vietnam. I We had very close friends. The family, the how I got out was I was adopted out by an American. <clears throat> At the time, he was a colonel, but he became a major general after. Um, so I, I spoke some English and even went to an international school where English was taught for part of the part of the uh, school hours. So it was shaky, but but you know it 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 I learned very fast. Um, and but of course spoke with a very strong accent, which I worked to reduce. Yeah, I would think that 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 part of it, language and accent, would be really tough, especially starting high school where. Kids can be really tough on each other. Yeah, I, I saw that even with my daughter's high school. So, you know, she had she. There are issues in all high schools and all teenagers. I, I suppose go through that. But in my case, there were uh, war issues, um, trauma issues, and then you know American reaction to the war. And we were reminders of this war. So. It was not pleasant my four years in high school in Virginia. But when I left to go to college, everything changed. I love that. More with Lon Cow and her daughter, Harlan Margaret Van Cow, about their book, Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, an American Daughter. Straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Fabulous 60s, the marches, the pians, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You're thrilled to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Ballet Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel. Who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, cold in protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. 
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Lon Cow and her daughter Harlan Margaret Van Cow about their book, Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, an American Daughter. Straight ahead. Because um, because this book is, is a memoir, and, and Lon has shared some of her backstory, if you will. Harlan, were there things you learned about your mom in the process of of writing this book that surprised you? Um, Yes and no. I think, well, there are several branches to the question. I think I was surprised about how she wrote because I knew she had a lot of books out already, so I'd never seen her process of making them because at the time I was either not alive or very young. So especially because our writing processes were so different. So that revealed a lot about her personality, the way she chose, she pondered a lot over what she wrote. It took her, she, she liked to start right away. Um, she, it was almost like she was like sculpting a chapter. Um, I read a lot of the stuff that she, I read her chapters and the life I cried a lot I'll be honest and I don't really cry that much with books I think it's really hard for me to cry um with movies or books the only thing I've ever cried for was Marley and me that one movie about the dog and <laughs> everybody cries I, in dog I, movies yeah, <laughs> yeah and so especially because I keep thinking like god this is my mom this is my mom I have to keep reminding myself because we, we're so close and writing it apart from each other just to avoid fights was very strange because you know I have to keep thinking we we don't know what we're going to put in the book about each other we usually find out last minute before we submit it to the publishing house (laughs) for editing we didn't collaborate on it that much at all so I would read it and I would try not to pick at it you you just read I have I have to try to read it as if I'm just a reader because it would have I I wanted to avoid um making the relationship all about the book and 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 making it making it too tumultuous which it often was but I learned a lot about her again like I it made me very protective over her more than more than ever especially because when I read it I mean I'm going I'm entering into adulthood so my already my understanding of the world is completely different and and in the process, um, did you learn things about your mother and her background that you didn't know, or did you already know a lot about her history? Well, since I was really little, I, I'm kind of a big talker, and I ask a lot of questions. I was kind of like that one annoying kid that's like, but why, but why? That's, that's hard to believe, Harlan. <laughs> and, um. I constantly would ask her about Vietnam just because I think since we spent so much time together, I could see she was very intense. She was not like a lot of my, like a lot of my friends' moms. Um, My dad would often hint at me, you know, like mommy went through something a little bit different. We have to be sensitive. And I mean, also just if you, you know, in the book, it's kind of implied that there are some very large traumatic instance that we go through together when I'm little. So that kind of forced me into asking her about it because trauma doesn't come from nowhere. Um, and so I knew a lot already. I think it's just the small details about probably mostly like her, her thirties, not even about 
the original landing in America or even her time in Vietnam. I knew a lot about that. Um, I could have probably written that part, <laughs> but definitely not the adult part. She always says that she feels she like wasted her 20s and part of her 30s and stuff. So I don't know much about that. Lon, um, whose idea was it to, to write this book together or to do this, uh, uh, what are they calling it, multi-generational memoir? Surprisingly, it was a Viking's idea. Really? Well, I, uh, yeah, That's interesting. I, yeah, I mentioned, yeah, I mentioned to you that I had really focused on fiction, because that's sort of more my natural inclination, is to take you know, like an idea, uh, an, an, an event that has affected me and has been really brewing inside me or torn me apart, but then go from there in a, in a imaginative trajectory. <clears throat> That's what fiction is for me. And so I, I never thought of memoir, but what happened was that we had been interviewed, Harden and I, uh, by NPR uh, StoryCorps, and it was, it was a quite a long interview. It started when Harlan was only 12. And then we never, uh, they never aired it. And in 2018, because it was the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive, which is a landmark event during the war, yeah. uh, NPR played a segment of the interview, the, the part of the segment that revolved around what happened during the Tet Offensive. And the, the format of the interview uh, in, at, in NPR was Harlan asking me questions. So it was interactive. So I think my editors at Viking heard it on NPR and approached us. They thought it was a great idea to have a mother-daughter story, which is unique because it involves the daughter having equal voice with the mother, and it's like a duet. Mm-hmm. And it happens in the daughter's life as she's reflecting on the relationship when she is indeed, you know, at the age, a, a young age. So it, it's not backward looking. And it, it combines two voices and it revolves around some of the very uh, controversial issues still uh, in, in the country, right? Immigration, refugees, migration, uh, what does it mean to be an American? So all those issues are embedded in our story. So Viking uh, asked us to do, uh, to, 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 uh, to propose the book. So it, it was actually their idea, and we uh, happily cooperated. I was reading something here that, that, that describes Harlan as fierce and independent-minded. Um, is that, <laughs> is, is that uh, just a result of her um, being born and and being raised in America, or have you encouraged that in her, Alon? Well, I have I have encouraged it, but much to my chagrin. <laughs> that's, that's, and you know, because her father was a um, constitutional law scholar and his focus was the First Amendment, so we always talk about free speech. But we never really wanted so much free speech in the house for her, but she's picked up on it, and she's extremely vocal. And uh, she <laughs> believes she has free speech, and it's against us, not just 
free speech against the government or by you know uh, granted by the government yeah so she's i think it's also her personality she's she's just very sassy um and we encourage it i mean we did not clip it and you know when i when she was little and i asked her to do something i always made a point of explaining you know all the reasons surrounding a particular rule so I think that opens it up to being questioned, right? So you don't just say, you don't just, we didn't issue a rule. We explained why the rule was important. You don't and use that old standby because I said so? No, barely. <laughs> only, only as a matter of last resort when nothing worked. Um, and I always give for both sides. To the rules, like why, what, and what's, what is the upside of the rule? What's the downside of the rule? Why did we pick that rule anyway? So it gives her a lot of room to question and to insert herself into the rule or to reject the rule. And um, so it, it creates independence, but it's also created a lot of complications because she probably feels I, I over-explained. Right. Instead of just telling her what to do, I think sometimes kids rebel against whatever uh, the natural standard is in the house. So maybe if I had said, because I said so, he would have reacted in opposition to it. But because I rarely use because I said so, she wished there were more because I said so. I think she, she wished to have maybe a brighter line rule than what she's used to. Harlan, before this project came up, um, were you already interested in writing? Uh, yes, I wrote a lot by myself. Um, I mean, I told all my teachers at school when I was in second and third grade that I was going to be a writer. I didn't even know what that meant, but I knew <laughs> that like, I, I knew that I needed something almost like a therapy. I think writing is very therapeutic for me, but I was never one of those kids who could write a diary, like, dear diary, today I did a cartwheel. Like, I could never do something like that because I, I, I would try. I tried to write in a diary and do, I guess, like the normal thing, but I, it just never worked for me. So a lot of the time I would put myself in a different character and I wouldn't change a lot of things about it but I would still describe my life but in the third person I think it was just easier for me to um, look at what was going on and think about it objectively if I needed help with a problem so it was very therapeutic um, but I mean doing it as kind of I don't want to say like as a job but doing it and knowing it's actually going to be seriously published by a house and then on top of it being in high school. And I mean, I would work on it in school, like in class. If the teacher said it's time to do your work, I would just write the book because most of the time I was leaving it to the last minute and being honest. So at that point I kind of had to, but um, yeah, I, I, I always thought about being a writer. I don't know if I knew what that meant, but by the time I was offered um, a serious, I guess, writing job. I had actually really wanted to do film writing. So that's kind of the end goal is to, to work on like scripts and story plots and screenwriting and maybe directing one day because I feel like movies are just, movie scripts are kind of just like a book but only the dialogue. Well, that's true because you have the visuals. You don't have to 
describe place and um, yeah. mood and all that. You can you can do that with visuals. Um, this this is fascinating. Um, since you brought up movies, <laughs> would you would you like to see this book turn into a movie? I think that would be uh, amazing. We saw last night. Um, we watched together that one French movie, Entre New, like w- about the two women, the best yeah. friends. And I was telling my mother, I think the movies that are so celebrated and so special, they're very special because of like the cinematography, like the plot itself is special. But it's, I mean, there are still in in our in our own lives, there's still an equal amount of like irony and drama and all of that. So it's all about how it's presented to an audience. So I don't know. I mean, I would, I, I think it would be amazing. I always felt like if it would be important to kind of show my mother's childhood going in and then raising um, me and then my life, because it kind of shows a domino effect between a mother and a daughter. I don't think there are enough movies about that. So it would be, I think that would be really, really cool. Who, who would you want to play you? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. Um, I have no idea. I mean, it's so funny because a lot of times I I read that actors actresses who are playing like fifteen year old girls are actually like twenty eight somehow. Yeah, I've I've noticed that too. Um, so Lon, um, how did you feel when Viking pitched this uh, this idea of doing this multi generational memoir? Um, and, and how did you uh, approach Harlan with it? <laughs> On the way to school. Yeah, I, I, I told her. <laughs> and I think she was very excited because she loves to write. And I knew that it would be an arduous project for us. So I was a little worried. You know, because at the, at the time, this I, we started this book when she was about 15 and a half. Yes. Yeah. She just turned 18, uh, meaning we started, to, you know, we were approached when she was about 15 and a half. And um, I, I, I was ambivalent, I have to say, because I, I thought it would create complications for us. I was ambivalent about the memoir form. And I was also ambivalent about whether or not she should take on a big project like this, which is really all-consuming when she is in the midst of high school and she was going through already a period in high school. But it turned out to be good because I think it provided her with a focal point, which was positive, um, that would take her mind away from some of the more negative aspects that she was going through in high school. I was also ambivalent because I was actually working on a collection of short stories myself. So to work on the memoir, I had to set that aside. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just sitting dormant in my computer drive now because I don't have the momentum yet to return to it. Yeah, I was going to ask what was uh, what was next for you. I've, I, I have been uh, experimenting with writing a collection of short stories that are linked <clears throat> in one way or another. And... I, I wanted to go in the short story collection direction because I feel like some of the stories that I'm interested in telling uh, can best be told in this form. But it, it, it would not 
take the length of a novel to right. develop this. And it would just be, it would require a very different vision because in a short story, uh, everything has to, everything you put in has to matter immediately because you have a shorter space, smaller space right. to do it and you have the bull's eye each, in each story. And so what I was interested is uh, looking at a series of events that have an immediate ripple effect in the character's life, immediate. So not over a span of 10 years. And so I thought the short story format would be the best condensed way, an explosive way of, of, as the vehicle for that. So that's what, I, that's what I would, you know, return to once uh, the memoir has sort of run its course through me. Harlan, what's next for you? Um, I'm going to UCLA in about a month. Um, staying in the dorms and doing online. Um, I'm actually working on my own thing right now. I've kind of been working on it for a while. I started when, actually, I started during the memoir because it was a totally separate thing. It's it's still focused on my mom and my family life, but it's more of a novel. So, I mean, it's still completely based on things that I've gone through, but. I, it's 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 definitely less challenging because I know I can disguise things through characters, which the memoir completely prohibited me from doing. Um, it's it's a kind of it's about right now. It's about just a girl going through typical you know teenage issues, but with a lot of complications. It'll probably address as subtly as possible, like modern issues like race and maybe um, feminism. Uh, I I don't know. It's very hard. It's so weird for me to even be talking about that because since I was, since I, you mean, got at that mature age, I've always been working with my mommy. So it's very <laughs> weird. Um, but that's but but this is kind of interesting because um, I I, I want to ask how reaction has been to the book so far. This is a tough time to be coming out with a book. Yeah, I mean, this is completely, it's a huge curveball. Um, a lot of the times, I mean, uh, people have been great, especially that we, we've done a couple podcasts, but you can see the interviewer's face. And um, the women who interview us often become very emotional, which makes me feel like we're doing something really good, even with the virus. It's, I mean, it just means that we can't do it in person. But I think now more than ever, people still want entertainment because people are kind of stuck in their houses figuring out what to do with themselves. Um, and in a way, this I mean, even though it's its kind of marketed as a refugee book, it's, you know, when someone reads it, they'll realize it, it points to so many other issues that I hope a lot of people can relate to. And I've noticed that just from the, the, the few interviews that we've done. Um, I think it means a lot even to the interviewer. So that's great. You know, we, we've done a lot. We've done a lot of in, uh, social media based sure. um, action, and and it's fascinating to me because I I'm not that well versed in social media, but I think that in the the direction of book publishing and author tours, it, it even before the pandemic, <clears throat> the publishers have started doing a lot more online. Mm -hmm. uh, publicity and marketing than sending authors on book tours. You know, I remember when I ha had Monkey Bridge published, I was, I think there was a period of like maybe two months that I was just on in one city after another. And that was 
already being phased out by the time I published The Lotus and the Storm. They were doing a lot more online and uh, uh, podcasts and, uh, you know, things that would just be on the computer, which I thought was fascinating. Interesting. Um, and Harlan, um, this this book, if it... There's going to be a certain amount of notoriety for you in the wake of this uh, book as it becomes more successful. Um, does that... Is is that exciting to you because it opens doors, or do you feel like it puts uh, some pressure on you um, a, a, as you move forward with your writing? Um, it's very exciting for me, but at the same time, I'm not entirely sure how to act. Like sometimes, I was just doing this written interview and asked, "Do you have ever imposter syndrome?" And I looked up what it meant, and I guess it means like this fear of people discovering in person that you're not as great as you seem on paper. So I feel <laughs> like my job kind of was to make, you know, make people think I'm really good with words, like enough to be published. And during interviews, I feel like sometimes I would drone on or I wouldn't seem like my character or something like that. So there's a little bit of pressure there, but I've never really been the type to feel pressure or stress. I think my mommy does a little bit. But I never did, and that was, like, a big problem, actually, for us in the writing process because I think she felt that I should have felt more pressure um, and taken it, like, more seriously. That's not to say that I didn't take it seriously, but, you know, I never I never pondered or thought about much, thought about it much when I was writing, so I've always been very light. Um, but, I, I mean, it's very, I mean, it's very exciting, and I... It, it would be really cool for it to open up doors, as I said, like in film or or maybe like a movie or something like that or an opportunity for me to do something on my own. But, you know, Harlan, it, the way she writes is very much her personality. It's like she turns on the faucet and the water comes out. <laughs> she doesn't worry about, well, do I have to build a pipe? Is the pipe clean? Is, is that going to be clogging? Is the water going to be hot or warm? None of that. So... When we were writing, it was just like, oh, she's not stressed. And I'm, I'm just, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, right? <laughs> so it, it, I think it's also probably my experience versus her experience. Um, she, she expects things to go smoothly because things have pretty much gone smoothly in, in the superficial way for her. You know, I mean, she's had a lot of difficulty with other issues. But in terms of not having a major rupture, uh, I, I think that has helped her be more confident than I ever was. More with Lon Cow and her daughter Harlan Margaret Van Cow about their book, Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, an American Daughter. Straight. <laughs>
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman study sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Lon Cow and her daughter Harlan Margaret Van Cow about their book, Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, An American Daughter. Straight ahead. Do you think that um, your background with the law has informed your writing in a way that um, that maybe creates some of that stress for you because you feel like you need to build a case for everything you say? Yeah, probably. Um, oh, and, and also I want to make sure that when I am not writing in legal scholarship that uh, the writing is not didactic. You know, there's, when you write a brief, you are making your point for your client. Um, and when you write a law article or a law book, it's very important that you're methodical. And the other kind of writing, which is a lot more creative writing, is not about being methodical. You know, sometimes it's just being serendipitous and creative and let inspiration take you wherever it wants to take you. And that can be scary for somebody who is much more of a planner to enter into a world of writing, which is uh, where you where you let go of the barriers to write. And when you do legal scholarship, uh, there are more you're in a perimeter. You're, you're, you, you, have a, you have a thesis, and you're staying with a thesis. So that kind of writing, uh, keeping yourself in a boundary, you know, I have to break out of that when I do the other kind of more creative writing. That could create more stress because it's very different parts of your brain being involved. Well, and it sounds like this was uh, an interesting uh, writing exercise for both of you, um, getting out of sort of your comfort zones. Um, and and has it has it also served to make you closer? Uh, well, you know, it 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 serves to make us closer in the sense that, and Harlan may have a different answer, in the sense that. I realized that after that, or despite so many explosive fights that we had during the process of writing it, but nonetheless, we remain close, right? So, so sometimes you feel like in a lot of relationships, if you have a lot of fights, the relationship will be chipped. And even if you continue with your friendship or with the relationship, it has been altered in a way that maybe is not what you had hoped. Right? But in this relationship, I discovered that even though we have had a lot of explosions, that some of which had nothing to do with the book, but some of which definitely were rooted in the book because of our different visions, how we write, you know, all the little parts that go into writing we have thought about. But nonetheless, um, it came, we, we emerged not unscathed, but 
the relationship continues, and it has not been chipped in any negative way. It's it's made marks on us for sure. You know, there are bruises, or <laughs> there, there are definitely scars and things like that. But but it's kind of like just part of living. Like if you grow older, you have lines on your face, but it's not a, it's not like okay, it has been altered in a really damaged way. And I think that's very positive. And that's not the case in in most other relationships, I think. And, so and that that has brought us closer in that way. And and Harlan, how would you respond to that? You said earlier that you and your mom had always been close. Um, do, do you feel like uh, you got closer from the book or that you got through the book without <laughs> ruining the relationship you already had? Um, well, the reason why we were so close in the first place is because I think if you are really connected to your kid um, and, I mean, you carry the kid for nine months and you pop it out and you raise it and you spend so much time with it, then you're... I mean, I really do feel that trauma is passed down over generations, especially if you raise a kid to be super aware of things, kind of like almost like a dog. Um, I I think since I was very small, I picked up on her and her various traumas and everything. So I felt it, too, to my core. So going into the book, um, there was pressure because I am thinking I have to express my relationship with her in a way that we can fit under a couple hundred pages and I mean the fights were all about all about what we're exactly what we're going to write how much are we going to expose what are the consequences of exposing it and then the I mean at one point she's like look I'll show you this is not this is not okay to write I'm going to tell the lawyer to tell you and it became very deep and we would sometimes go days where we wouldn't really talk I would go to school I would be very upset because that morning on the way we had fought six in the morning about exactly what we're going to do and the fights I mean as I mean you probably know this even this even maybe like you remember with your own mother fights always go into other things my god there's a plane going over our house (laughs) sorry um fights always branch off into other things that are way more personal and not about what it was originally um, but during those fights, after, I, I've never felt that a fight was a bad thing. Maybe I just don't want to face something as being bad. But I, I learned so much about her, um, even though we're very combative. But, uh, I think it brought us, it didn't make us closer, because I don't know if that's possible, but it definitely made me more conscious of the relationship, um, more aware of what upsets her, more more aware of her... I guess predicts her what, how she works, every everything like that. And also, I mean, we could fight, and then the next day we could have like a podcast interview about something. We'd have to sit down, we have to talk about our relationship, and then even doing that in itself is kind of like it, <laughs> it, it, it stirs us. Well, I, I, it's it's really fun talking with both of you, but unfortunately, you've gone a little past what what I had originally planned, but. Um, it, it's, uh, it's been such a great conversation. I can't believe how fast the time has gone, but we do have to end it here. Um, but not before, uh, first I say 
thank you to you both, Lon Cow and her daughter, Harlan Margaret Van Cow. Uh, the name of the book is Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, an American Daughter. Is there a website for the book? Uh, my website is lancowauthor.com. And it, Harlan has an Instagram. What is it, Harlan? Um, it's Harlan underscore VC. Well, thank you both for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, thank so you for including us. Take care. Now, as I said, that was uh, Lon Cow and her daughter, Harlan Margaret Van Cow. The book is Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, An American Daughter. I'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <music> comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Thank you for calling North Shore Dock. Due to the current stay-home order, we are experiencing longer-than-normal delays. Your patience is appreciated. Thank you. North Shore Dock. Just stay here, my husband. Okay, okay, I will. Hello? Hi, I I, uh, I need to get my boat in before the weekend for Memorial Day. You probably need my name. It's Dr. Mark Mallory. Doctor. Well, Doctor, we are too backed up right now, so there's no chance that can happen this weekend. Just say you're my husband, you little bitch. Uh, okay, well, what if I was to tell you that I may just happen to be the husband of the governor? Would that make a difference? No. The husband of Governor Gretchen Whitmer? Does that name ring a bell? Yes, sir. So now, how soon can you get my boat in? Not this weekend, sir. You do realize I am known as Michigan's first gentleman, don't you? Okay. That means nothing to you? Not really, sir. 
You tell him to get our boat in the water or I'll shut down all of Traverse City so fast his head will spin. Did you hear that? My wife is not playing games here. We want our boat in the water this weekend. Do you understand? I understand, sir. But there's no chance that could happen this weekend. He won't let us? What do we do? <sighs> just hang up. Uh, oh, uh, actually, I was just joking. Prank caller, prank caller, baba booey, baba booey. Hi, I'm Alexander Zajic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.